Never in the city's history has it been this hot for this long. We uh, had another very hot day today with 119 the high. It's so hot out here. Not even the cactuses are surviving. In Arizona, where 110 degrees is the new normal, a heat emergency turning to a matter of life and death. Summer heat is nothing new to Arizona. Extreme summers are par for the course. But there are some differences that have even hardy locals bemoaning this season. July set a new Phoenix record for the most consecutive days above 110 degrees. Prior to this summer, the eight warmest years on the planet had all been recorded since 2015, according to the World Meteorological Organization. Despite this extreme heat, the Phoenix Valley is suited for this kind of weather. Or is it? Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Each week, we break down the news and policies that affect you. I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover state politics and policy. And I'm Ron Hansen. I cover national politics. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle this week. Stay up to date on the issues that matter most by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcasting app. Today, we're exploring the politics of heat, what is being done, what still needs to be done, and how Phoenix and Arizona are battling the heat. As Phoenix was in the midst of a record-shattering heat wave in mid-July, State Senator Justine Wadsack, a Republican from Tucson, tweeted, quote, This weather is normal. If you can't stand the heat in Arizona, you're welcome to leave. Well, I live in Arizona because I couldn't take the cold in the Midwest anymore, but I still find the heat fascinating. So here are a few facts based on data from the National Weather Service about the heat that Justine Wadsack finds normal. Phoenix has had at least 17 days of 115 degrees or more in 2023. That's as many as Phoenix had combined between 1896 and 1943. Since 2000, Phoenix has set 193 daily record highs. In the same period, it has set one record low. Now, I'm not a climate scientist, and it appears Senator Wadsack isn't either. So let's talk to someone who is. Joining us today is Karen Potter, an Arizona representative for the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, also called SWEEP. She crafts policies and programs that advance utility energy efficiency and other demand-side resources, as well as transportation electrification through state regulatory and legislative processes. Karen, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So, Karen, let's start with the first question right off the top. Have you studied climate science? Yeah, that's a great question. So as a part of my research in graduate school, I was a part of a professional science master's program called Climate Science and Solutions, where we took a very kind of holistic approach at, at looking at, you know, what is climate? What is it? What is the impact that we're seeing? Um, across the country and also across the world. But really, what are the solutions for tackling it? And what are everyday things that individuals can do to help to try to mitigate the issues? And also, what can we institute as policies to correct the issues from multiple sectors of our economy? And the area that I chose to focus on was energy. So as we all know, this summer has been brutal. There's been days of 
110 degrees or more, one after the other, and a mounting number of heat-related deaths, especially among the unhoused community. Mercifully, the grids held up. Everyone's complaining about the heat, but are people making the connection to climate change? I think some people definitely are, and heat is kind of one of these things that almost defines a part of our existence living in the valley, right? When people that don't live in Arizona ask us where we are and what's going on in Phoenix, their first question is always, oh my gosh, isn't it so hot here? How can you live there? How can you deal with it in the summer? And as people are looking at some of those statistics of increasing you know, records that it seems like we can continue to trample over every single year, the question is in people's mind is, is it going to stay like this or is it going to get worse? You know, I've seen some questions out there where people are posing, is this actually the coolest summer we're going to have from now on? If you kind of think of it that way, it's kind of an alarming question, right, for some of us, uh, especially right now. It's been extremely hot this summer. So I think people more and more are starting to look at issues related to climate and what they're experiencing in their everyday life right now and are continuing to be concerned with the direction that we're headed. And should they make that connection to climate change? I mean, is that is that held up by the data? Yes. But what I think when it comes to what's helpful, I think I like to think about it in a little bit of a, a different approach. Because often when people think about climate change, it's really hard to to grasp all of the issues that come with such a huge topic. And extreme heat, that's something that we're facing every single day. So, you know, as someone that focuses on public policy issues, as someone that tackles energy policy, I think it's better to talk about extreme heat as issues related to public health and also issues related to grid stress. So looking at the daily highs for June, July, and August, they peaked in 2020. We have an excellent chance to break that record this year. So it seems like we're kind of on an upswing into something that feels new and worse than what we've typically experienced here. Given that, how do our current heat mitigation policies look for this uncertain future? Is there something that is proven effective somewhere else that we should be talking about, that we should be trying to incorporate here? What is your view of the policy space in trying to meet this new future? I think it's a great question. And I think there's a lot more we can and should be doing. And I think the problem is with your second question of what are other people doing? You know, there are examples from other areas, especially places like Virginia, Maryland, that also have extreme heat in the summer, but maybe they have more humidity Um, in places like Texas. There are other places across the region that have and see really high extreme temperatures in the summer. I think the biggest challenge with a place like Phoenix, Arizona, is because we lack that moisture in the air, you know, we really feel almost every single degree as it continues to rise every day. And I think that's a big concern, especially for our systems. And that's one of the biggest issues that I see when it comes to some of the policies There are some policies like the city of Phoenix has where they offer different solutions like cool roads where they use a special type of paint that allows for the sun to essentially bounce off of the road. And those are extremely important from a day to day. But one area that I feel like has not really been viewed in a more in a larger uh, lens is policies related to utilities, policies related to the electric grid. 
because that's one area of extreme heat that we often don't talk about. But there is this really intense feedback loop that develops from extreme heat and the impacts of extreme heat on our electric grid system. So give us a sense of what specifics you think policies should be addressing to deal with either grid security or any other kinds of structural or infrastructural changes that would be useful here in the Valley to help us either bring down the heat or change the way that it is realized here? Absolutely. And before I go into some of the policies, it might be helpful to describe what that feedback loop looks like and why we really need to start tackling these issues very seriously at all levels of government in Arizona. So the first part of this negative feedback loop that I want to describe is increased energy demand. So during heat waves, the demand for electricity surges as people are relying more and more on air conditioning and other cooling systems. And this can strain the electric grid and lead to potential blackouts or brownouts if the grid infrastructure can't cope with that increased load. And again, that increased load is because more and more people need more AC. They need to keep their systems cooling for longer because temperatures are rising and their housing, their their equipment in their homes are not being able to cool down as they normally would when the sun goes down at night. And the second part of this feedback loop is strain on the distribution and transmission systems. And this could lead to potential equipment failure, which is a huge concern for folks in the energy industry. So equipment like transformers and conductors are designed to withstand the hottest days of the year, right? So we build our systems intentionally knowing, okay, we can withstand you know, certain elements of heat and we're prepared to handle the worst that weather gives us, right? However, I think one of the things that's been very interesting, especially with this recent heat wave, is the lows in which it's still really hot at night, right? So when it stays above even 100 degrees at night, it's a lot harder for that equipment to cool down enough to combat the next day's heat. So you're kind of continuing to add on this stress to the system, and there's not really an opportunity for relief until we get into the the cooler months of the year. So you've done a nice job of describing that loop. How did we break it? There's a couple different ways to do this. We talk a lot about like resiliency, adding resiliency to our electric grid. Governor Hobbs just declared that heat state of emergency after the 30 days of excessive heat warnings. And often the when we're looking at like our utilities, often they may say, hey, we need to you know build out more capital investments in order to maintain reliability and make sure that the grid is secure. And that's one of the solutions that we often hear about trying to handle this issue. However, one area that my organization, SWEEP, that we focus on a lot is the energy efficiency and using energy efficiency as a resource because it's not just a matter of expanding our grid system in order to maintain reliability during heat waves. It's to improve on our system and to kind of, quote unquote, tighten the system so that it's more productive during heat waves so we can reduce the risk of brownouts or blackouts, which, you know, we've seen from a lot of studies that have come out recently, it can be deadly in the Valley and in Phoenix if there is a a heat wave that results in a blackout in this area. So this is a very serious issue that we have to look at in multiple different ways. And energy efficiency is a really key cost-effective and productive solution for dealing with the risks of extreme heat. 
you've talked about the various ways that this problem sort of manifests itself or the problems that it presents to policymakers. Give us a sense of how you think the Valley is doing at managing heat in various corners of the spectrum of considerations. There is, of course, things like the utility bills that consumers will be paying, but there's also at the other end, homeless people who are left to fend for themselves, for example, in this kind of extreme climate and everything in between from the cost of doing this, the business recruitment impacts and such. How do you assess how Phoenix and the Valley is doing in terms of managing this in a way that feels that it is meeting the actual hazard this presents? The utilities in the Phoenix area that people are probably the most familiar with, Arizona Public Service and Salt River Project, offer multiple different types of energy efficiency offerings. And I think what's important to keep in mind is energy efficiency is thousands of different types of equipment that can be utilized for different purposes to improve our homes and to make our lives, you know, run more smoothly during extreme heat. You know, some practical solutions are things on an individual level like shade trees, for example. You know, often if you have the right type of tree that's planted in the right area of your home, it creates this really great shade that helps to reduce the strain on your HVAC and air conditioning. So that's a very kind of easy way to help to relieve some of this. Also, solutions like insulation are huge for your home. So if you're home, you know, you can have the latest and greatest solar panels on your home. You can have the most efficient air conditioning units installed in your home. But if you don't have proper insulation, a lot of that's still going to go out the door and you're not going to get the benefits of doing these home renovations without doing some of the basic building blocks, if you will. Regarding energy efficiency moves, I'm wondering how many of those, how that relates to our other big issue here in Arizona, which is our water supply. Planting trees sounds like a wonderful idea, but are we working against ourselves if we do that? I would say no, because energy efficiency programs at a whole scale, when we're looking at all of the programs that are offered, actually help to save a significant amount of energy. In fact, utility programs from APS, SRP, and also even Tucson Electric Power help to save billions of gallons of water from energy efficiency alone, because as you're reducing energy usage. In many ways, you're also reducing the amount of water that you need as well. So there is kind of that push-pull. And also for shade trees, too, I think that the important thing is to focus on trees that are local, native trees that maybe wouldn't need as much water as trees that really need a lot of water that are not native to the area. This issue has an undeniable political dynamic to it. We see oftentimes on the right, people who will not even acknowledge that we are in an era of increasing extreme weather. We have in Arizona's Senate race, for example, the Democratic candidate Ruben Gallego is talking about seeking legislation to allow extreme heat to be part of the FEMA-related events that can trigger federal aid. We also see from Kirsten Cinema, the independent senator, is talking about pursuing legislation that would try to help finance things that would mitigate the effects of heat and try and avoid the problem in the first place in some ways. Talk about what 
challenges this presents from a scientific perspective is you're trying to get people to buy into what we can do that we know works and maybe in practice in other places that could have an impact here if we could summon the will to do it. Another great question. Um, I think, you know, with summoning the will to do it, that's why I think it's often better to focus on the local extreme heat solutions that we can implement either at a local, maybe kind of utility service territory level and then statewide. Because whether or not people may agree on why extreme heat is happening and why it's getting worse, we can agree it's still hot. <laughs> we, we all can agree that this is not preferred to just kind of suffer through, you know, the summer months and that we should find ways to make it more bearable for people. While there are a lot of people that are not homeless, there are also a lot of people, though, that don't have adequate housing and don't have adequate equipment that they need in their homes in order to be comfortable through the summer months. And that's something that I think everyone, or at least, you know, we can get more people behind the idea of helping to fix these issues. Because in many ways, the effects of extreme heat and the issues we have related to affordable housing and homelessness are all very much connected. And there very much are solutions where we can help to try to tackle all of those together. You mentioned thinking of how to make this more bearable. Let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Should we be making this more bearable? Is that part of the problem? Think of people who live in hurricane-prone coastal areas that are repeatedly wiped out and rebuilt and we rinse, repeat, and watch and wonder why we keep doing this. Should we be rethinking what we should even be doing in the desert? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really important issue to consider in terms of are we just going to continue growth without identifying if there are limits for where we live and are there restraints that we need to be considering I like to think about it from the aspect of we do have people here and we don't want anyone to suffer through the impacts of extreme heat if we can avoid it. And that's where I think our work comes in, because there's a lot of homes that are extremely outdated in terms of haven't been updated appropriately for whole home building efficiencies, what we call it. So the work that you need for increasing insulation in the home, changing out windows to make them more efficient to reduce energy loss. There's a lot of things that you can do in a home to help to make it more livable, and we should be doing more of those things. But it is a big question that, I mean, we're going to have to contend with at some point in terms of how far in the future should we build out and how should we maintain the systems that we have if and when heat gets worse. And I think that's a big issue that our politicians and everyone in the state is going to have to deal with. But luckily, I think there are some things we should be doing right now to make things more bearable. For example, there was this recent study from the Department of Energy that analyzed the most recent International Energy Conservation Code. So this is one you know suite of multiple different international codes that focus on building enforcement to make sure it's up to spec and that we're getting kind of the latest additions for energy efficiency, safety and security in a building, you know, all of these different things. And that Department of Energy study showed in their results that the 2021 International Energy Conservation Code showed that that code, if it's adopted, can reduce deaths from extreme heat by as much as 80 percent. 
To me, that's significant. And to me, that shows we can reduce the worst effects of extreme heat if we modernize our buildings, if we make them as efficient and productive as possible, and if we find ways to make more affordable homes that are that are focused on efficiency rather than, uh, you know, than looks, then we're going to help protect more people from the extreme heat that we see. We can't leave this conversation without talking about the people who don't have access, though, to housing. There was an incident in 1993 when a homeless woman's body was found on the grounds of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Not a good look for the federal government. And so far this summer, we've already turned up two dead bodies on the grounds of our state capitol. We don't know if that's related to the heat or if they were living there, but the fact that they're showing up on the doorstep of state government, again, is not a good look. And Phoenix has been busy trying to clean up the zone, moving the mass encampment away from downtown. So has the city done enough to help the homeless during this heat wave and to ensure that they have the best health outcomes possible? I would say I think there's a lot more that we should be doing and that there's a lot more that we can do. When we think about the process in which someone becomes homeless, oftentimes before that actually happens, before they lose housing, one of the biggest bills that they have is their electric bill. And there is this metric that we like to look at, and it's called energy burden. And it assesses the percentage in which the disposable income that a household has and the percentage of that disposable income that has to go their utility bills. And the energy burden in Arizona is high, and it is especially high in areas where their utilities are maybe not as secure. And also for people that are on the verge of maybe, you know, losing their home, there's a lot of factors for that, that maybe solutions like energy efficiency could have made the difference of them to be able to stay in their home one more month and prevent the risk of what may happen to them if they're on the streets. So I think we need to be thinking about these issues in a way of ensuring that people can save their current housing and protect themselves as much as possible by helping to protect them from potential utility shutoffs and to help to make their utility bills more manageable. Luckily, right now, we're in a moratorium timeline where the utilities do not shut off customers. And we all know why that took place, right? Where this one woman, unfortunately, died because her bills were just under the threshold in which was allowed for debt to procure and her utilities were shut off. So while we're in this moratorium area, we still need to be careful for the people, for the amount of debt that they're collecting in this time. And if they're going to be able to maintain these bills after that and, you know, with all the other looming pressures that these people have. So I think there's a lot more we need to be doing for people that are on the streets. But there's also a lot more we need to be doing to help people reduce the impact of their utility bills on their daily lives. Because people shouldn't have to make the choice between whether or not they're going to have power and whether or not they're going to feed their family one night. That should never be a choice anyone has to make. And if we do more to help people to reduce the impact of their utility bills, maybe we'll also have less people that end up on the streets. I don't have that data to say that definitively, but it's a question that I'm posing to the city, to the state. We should be doing more to help people to maintain their living situations and to ensure that it's comfortable, safe, and secure while maintaining that it's not the biggest part of their income and where their bills have to go. Well, Karen, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this very important subject. 
If people want to follow your work online or in social media, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So Sweep's website is www.swenergy.org. If folks are interested in you know connecting more, I love to hear other policy solutions or what people are working on in this space. So feel free to email me, cpotter at swenergy.org. Now we're going to turn to an examination of the City of Phoenix's Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. This office is the first of its kind for a city-funded program, and it's approaching its third year. City leaders and members of the office have promised real strategies to combat heat in the Valley, but critics say the office is not following through with those promises. Joining us to examine the criticism is our City of Phoenix reporter, Taylor Seeley. Taylor, welcome back to The Gaggle. Thank you for having me again. So before we dive in, the gaggle reached out to the city to talk about the heat issues. They didn't offer anyone to speak with us this week. So, Taylor, let's first outline what sorts of programs and solutions the Heat Mitigation Office has produced and those that are in the pipeline. The Heat Office, I think back in April, published a plan for the summer and how they were going to tackle heat. And it was a pretty expansive list. It had, I think, if I remember correctly, 31 ideas. And most of the ideas were things they had already been doing, education for first responders, best practices, having little audio notifications when you enter the bus on best heat practices. And then they had some new ideas that they wanted to either edit from years past or try new. Taylor, talk about some of the emergency responses that this office is tasked with doing. What have we seen three months into this heated summer? I think the most popular heat relief program has just been the Heat Relief Network. That's the official name for it. But it's basically just the entire region of Maricopa County coming together to make public facilities and other buildings available for heat relief. So you go in and you can just get some nice air conditioning. You can get some water if you need any any type of assistance. If you're experiencing like heat illness, you can get that addressed there. One of the criticisms, however, with that program is the timing that the facilities are open. So I think there is just one facility that's actually open 24 hours. And some of the other facilities close early in the afternoon. And that's been a concern for residents who say, well, if you're closing a facility at 2 p.m. and that is like the peak time of heat in Phoenix, is that really all you can be doing? The city likes to pivot and say, well, that's a Maricopa County thing. Like, go to them, talk to them about it. But when I push and say, well, what about your city facilities within the program? They acknowledge, okay, yes, there is more we need to do. And I genuinely believe they want to do more. I don't have any reason to doubt that. But it comes down to staffing. You know, we did see Governor Hobbs and Mayor Kate Gallego just last week have a press conference about the struggle to fill city positions. I think the city of Phoenix is down 2,300 jobs across different departments. So as it pertains to a city library and its hours that it can operate during the day to keep people cool, I think they would love to do it. But if they don't have the staff, their hands are tied. So, Taylor, a report that you did last month 
examined a lot of those 31 items to see what's been happening. One of them that was interesting is this idea of a mobile water unit, which would drive around to places in need and dispense water. Also with the little environmental goal of maybe refilling reusable bottles and reducing the need for plastic water bottles. But it's unclear what's been going on with that. Bring us up to date. Yeah. So when I first started tackling this, I wanted to understand what are some of the new things they're trying. And of those new things, I found a little mobile water unit. And I reached out to the city, said, hey, what is that? The information I got was that it was essentially like a food truck, but for water that would travel around handing out refrigerated water bottles. And it would pair nicely with one of their other plans to provide aluminum water bottles to reduce plastic water bottles and provide people a good solid water bottle to have, especially people who are experiencing homelessness. I was excited about it. Honestly, I was going to write a fun little story about like a food truck, but for water. I was like, okay, well, can I get photos of it? Can I figure out where in the city are you going? How are you going to figure out where you're going to go? And I was told at the time, it's not ready yet. We don't know. It's going to go to the places that need it the most. It was sort of a vague answer. This was in June. I said, okay, I guess I'll wait. And I reached back out in July. No updates. The product was still not available. And to my knowledge, it is still not available to the public. So I think for me, that spurred a lot of questions just about how is the heat office doing as a whole and all of these 31 plans that they had Where are they following through? Where are they not? A lot of what you've talked about is the emergency response. There's also some long-term planning that's underway as well. Talk about the Cool Pavement Program, how much they have done and how that fits into the context of the city's overall road system. So Cool Pavement is this reflective coating that you place on streets and it's supposed to reflect the heat away from the pavement to reduce the urban heat island effect, that being that Concrete tends to absorb heat and keep it kind of stuck in the area overnight. Right now, the city has deployed 100 miles of cool pavement. It's been something they've touted. And this is something that, if deployed at scale, is supposed to hopefully reduce air temperatures in a way that, again, affects the urban heat island effect. Now, what critics have been pointing to is that when you actually stand on top of cool pavement, it makes you more uncomfortable than standing on regular pavement. This is because, obviously, the sun reflects up, and if you're on top of it, it's going into you. So it raises your internal body temperature by 5.5 degrees. And the city knew this back when they decided to move ahead with it. This isn't like a surprise. It's just been recently reported more, I think, maybe because as we hit the 100-mile mark, you have more residents who are seeing it and experiencing it and, and commenting on it. So again, it's sort of this It's sort of this weird thing with this city because they're definitely touting it. They're very proud of it, the 100 miles. To put it in context, I think there's something like 4,400 miles in the city. So it's a very small portion. And the whole point of it is that it's really effective when it's deployed at scale. But there are also questions of if it can or is appropriate to be deployed at scale. Because if it's uncomfortable when you're standing on top of it, And it's not really good in high pedestrian areas. And we're also talking in other conversations in Phoenix about creating a more pedestrian-friendly city. There's just like, is this going to work? So it's a tough point for the city right now. 
Another long-term goal is to get more trees and shade structures in the city. And I've lived here for quite a while, and I remember several rounds of the city of Phoenix being on a tree planting effort. Mayor Paul Johnson, you know, touted that years ago. There was a program with the utilities, I think, to incentivize planting trees. What does this plan call for? And are we seeing more trees and more shade structures? Back in 2010, the city council approved a tree shade master plan that was a really big deal. They set this ambitious goal to shade 25% of the city by 2030. This was such a big deal that neighboring states took notice. The LA Times wrote about how ambitious of a goal this was. And as best I can tell, the city has not done an adequate job of publishing and providing public information on how well they're accomplishing that goal. When I went to their website to learn more about it, I was at one point directed to a PDF that had stats from 2011 and 2012, so about a year and two years after they passed their plan. I tried to click a dashboard to provide information on where trees were. It sent me to a 404 error page. I published this story three, maybe four weeks ago now, and I went back today. It's still not fixed. So I don't know where they are with that goal, to be honest with you. There is one PDF that shows different neighborhood villages and where they are. Some of them are around 9%. I think the highest I saw was maybe 14, 15% tree shade. But I also don't know how out of date that PDF is. So there, I think, are more questions than answers when it comes to trees. I can say that the city has signaled a pivot away from this plan. They have talked in recent months more about tree equity versus the 25% goal, saying, well, we should really focus instead of just an arbitrary number and saying we want this many trees across the city, why don't we focus on the areas that need it the most? So areas perhaps like South Phoenix, why don't we get trees where people would be most benefited from them. But I think it comes with that asterisk of, and by the way, don't ask about the 2010 plan. Phoenix only appointed a heat response director in 2021. It seems like the time it is taking to stand up that office essentially means the city is lurching through another summer of extreme heat without its optimal mitigation efforts underway and fully fleshed out. Is that the case? Is that fair to the city? What is the the status of that office and its ability to make a difference this summer? The office is really small, and I do think that that is an important thing to point out. I mean, from my conversations with the director, Mr. Handula, he is obviously a very hardworking individual. He has so much passion for heat mitigation, so I don't want to underplay that in any way. That said, I have questions about their preparation heading into the summer months. One of their items that they said they would do in their April plan for this summer was they would come out with weekly reports on how they were preparing to implement their heat emergency response plans. And I requested those documents. And when I received those documents, they were weekly reports that, by and large, focused on what media outlets they were talking to, what panels their staff sat on, and in a couple cases, what states they went to to look at how other cities were tackling heat mitigation. They 
did not at all focus on how they were preparing their heat response programs. And I don't want to make it sound as though they weren't. They just, this wasn't in the reports. When I came to the city asking for comment, they told me, oh, we're so sorry. That's actually the wrong report. He said, okay, where are the right reports? And they said, oh, we we didn't do them, but we're starting them in July. For anyone who lives in Arizona, you know that it's hot starting in May, if not April. So I just, I think it's strange that the city council is not provided weekly reports from the heat office on what they're doing to prepare, but yet they are provided information on what news outlet they talk to this week. Taylor, obviously we are in the midst of seeing the city disperse the zone, removing a lot of these encampments that are uh, between downtown and the state capitol. Does this office have any kind of plan for providing shelter for people who have been displaced by that? Is that even their lane or does that go to another office? The heat office works with almost every department in the city. And so a lot of times with Something such as the zone and the dispersal of that population, it's going to hit a bunch of different departments. So I think Office of Homeless Solutions is probably the primary group in the city dealing with that situation. But that has also been a tricky spot for the city. I think one of the things they were most looking forward to was a shelter site on Lower Buckeye Road, I think 22nd Avenue area. It was these cool shipping container homes that were going to have solar panels on them, provide air-conditioned units. And I think they were betting on that to place at least a couple hundred of the individuals from the zone there. They ended up having some environmental issues with that land, and it didn't come to fruition. So now that's when they pivoted to a structured campground that is still underway. So what involvement the heat office has had in that? I don't know exactly the details. I would imagine that Just based on their experience in other areas, they're probably helping work on coordinating shade and water with that structured campground. Mayor Gallego supports legislation that would help provide emergency federal resources to the Valley during heat waves. But has she made it clear what she would do with funding or extra resources if that came to pass? Yeah, she has been, I think, one of the most vocal supporters of FEMA declaring heat as an emergency program that is eligible for funding. She mentioned it in her State of the City recently. She very much wants that funding for heat relief centers, so more long-term permanent solutions. That way, they have this already kind of infrastructure in place versus having to do these pop-up tents here and there. So she's been super supportive of that. I will say I've reached out to FEMA and asked more about what this looks like in practice, making heat eligible for more funding. One of the things they have said is that they are most beneficial for communities once they know that the communities themselves have provided all the resources and they're at capacity. They can't do anything more. And again, I have more questions than answers, but I do just have questions about how do we know that Phoenix and all of our regional governments are doing everything they possibly can, that they have spent all their funds, and that relief is beyond their capacity. So, Taylor, if people have concerns about the heat, they want to know more about what the city's doing or maybe what they can do to help, where should they go? Well, 
I will say, hopefully, if you are just out, particularly in downtown Phoenix, or maybe you are um, one of those crazy, I mean, brave people hiking in this heat, then you would hopefully run into a City of Phoenix volunteer, actually. They have a program where they have volunteers and city staff members out in downtown and throughout the city directing people for where to go. So if there's like a library nearby or a cooling center, they can actually send you in that direction. Maybe they'll provide you an aluminum water bottle to keep cool. Otherwise, they will probably direct you to a website, and I'll provide that now. It's hrn.azmag.gov. That HRN stands for Heat Relief Network. MAG is Maricopa Association of Governments. That is the website for the Heat Relief Network in Maricopa County. So you can go on that website and you can type in your address or you can explore the map and figure out the nearest facility to you for heat relief. There's probably one other program that people could benefit from learning about. I know that the city really wants to have more participants. It's called the Cool Callers Program. So if you have someone in your life that you're worried about or that you just want the city to kind of touch base with and do wellness calls, you can sign them up and the city's heat office is supposed to call those individuals and say, hey, how are you doing? Is your air conditioning working? Are you having any trouble paying your utility bills? If the participant is having troubles, then those volunteers are going to redirect them to some assistance or relief. The city has volunteers. They're eagerly awaiting to call people. But from what I've heard, they just don't have very many participants enrolled in the program yet. Taylor, thanks for talking to us today. And if people want to follow your work on social media, where can they find you? I am on X, formerly known as Twitter, <laughs> at TaylorSeely95. Seely is S-E-E-L-Y. And I'm on threads at Taylor.A-Z-C. That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. Thank you to everyone who has sent us questions about Arizona politics, and we're working our way through them. To find out if your question gets picked for an upcoming episode, subscribe to The Gaggle on your favorite podcasting app. And if you haven't sent us a question yet, here's how to do it. You can leave a message on our hotline at 602-444-0804. Or send us a voice memo to thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. Remember to follow, rate, and review us wherever you're getting the gaggle. You can find us on social media at AZC Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter and threads at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. And you can find me on Twitter and threads at Mary J. Pitzel. That's P-I-T-Z-L. This episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. You can find her on Twitter at Kaylee Monahan. That's K-A-E-L-Y-M-O-N-A-H-A-N. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>